Good evening, everyone. If uh, you all will come on up and take a seat, we'll get started. Thank you. Um, good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Narrative Medicine Rounds. Um, my name is Deepu Gowda. I'm an internist here at Columbia, and I'm the course director of the Foundations of Clinical Medicine course at the medical school, where we teach students the medical interview and the physical exam. Um, I've been engaged in this community of narrative medicine since I was a resident, since I was an intern. So it's a program that's really inspired and influenced the way I think about medicine. Uh, I want to announce a couple things. We're looking ahead in your calendars. Next month, um, we have filmmaker Peter Nix coming here. He's a filmmaker that made a movie called The Waiting Room uh, that is really about the life of a urban hospital and its care of a largely uninsured population. Um, so he'll be with us uh, speaking about his film. Earlier that day, we'll be screening that film as well. Um, so if you're on the Narrative Medicine Listserv, you'll get that information. If you're not on the Narrative Medicine Listserv, just find me um, afterwards or find Rachel Rampel. Where's Rachel? Rachel, or find her and just give your name and email address to her and she'll put you on that listserv. Um, and uh, in April, Cheryl Mattingly, an educator, will be with us for Narrative Medicine Rounds. And in May, author Susan Ball will be with us. And Susan is a physician and also a graduate of the Narrative Medicine Master's Program. So that's going to be uh, really great to have her with us um, in May. So tonight is a real special night for us. Um, you know, for narrative, medicines, narrative Medicine Rounds, we're not looking outside for guidance and inspiration. This is a night where we're actually uh, looking uh, inside our institution and looking at um, someone who has truly informed the way we think about text, the way we think about reading and writing, um, and have, having us look differently at the idea of creativity as it lives and inhabits the medical space. Um, so the uh, person who's going to be introducing um, the, the speaker tonight is Maura Spiegel. Uh, Maura is a, a core member of the program in Narrative Medicine. She's one of the founding members. Uh, she teaches English at Columbia University and also teaches film to our medical students. Maura. Thank you. <laughs> okay, this is such a particular, particular kind of pleasure to introduce my dear friend and colleague, Nellie Herman, who has been battling a terrific flu for the last two weeks and now has a pretty stiff case of laryngitis, but she is going to brave, you know, she's going to give it a shot to read to us tonight. Nellie is a graduate of Brown University and the MFA program at Columbia. And it was as a graduate student that she first found narrative medicine, volunteering to run a writing workshop for first year medical students, which was a great hit. Her first novel, The Cure for Grief, which was published by Scribner in 2008, received national acclaim in many, many venues, including Time Magazine, Elle, The Washington Post, The Boston Globe. It is a novel that really floored me. It's so moving and unalloyed, left me really in a puddle. Her short story, Can We Let the Baby Go, won first prize in Glimmer Train's 2008 Family Matters competition. Her nonfiction has appeared in an anthology about siblings, Freud's, it's called Freud's Blind Spot, as well as in academic medicine. She has been an invited resident to numerous artistic residencies, such as the Malay Colony, the U Cross Foundation, and the Saltonstall Foundation of the Arts. Of her new novel, A Season of Migration, one critic has written, attempting a novel of such a giant figure is a bit like punching the playground's tallest bully right in the nose. A showy confidence will get you only so far. But a historical novel as successful as this one, both in scope and in the beauty of its language, reminds us that literature can do anything. We have a language here that in its beauty does justice to Van Gogh's own brilliance. And of this writer, the New York Times writes, her searching empathy and exacting passion accrue as brushstrokes on a canvas until at last we may stand back, perceive the whole, and let it enter us. And as many of you know, Nellie is the creative director of the program Narrative Medicine in that notable and rather unusual role. Um, and in her teaching in the master's program um, in Narrative Medicine, she has been an inspiration and a joy to work with. 
And here's the thing about Nellie from my point of view. She makes it look simple and straightforward, even when she is explaining the most, you know, um, or prompting, working with something very, very complex. She just makes it look simple. And this feature of her style has a remarkable effect on people. The most challenging assignment becomes approachable and doable. And the way she just does things becomes a model for her students. It reduces anxieties, gets things moving without raising the temperature. Somehow she wears her creative genius lightly. I am always wondering what is going on in her mind at any moment when we're on the street. What is she seeing? What is she seeing? A leading light in our world and a shining star in the literary firmament. Here's Nellie Hogan. Okay, I'm going to try this. I have tea and water and cough drops. So I was um, <clears throat> I was planning on having someone read for me, but I, Catherine Rogers reminded me that I like to read from my book. So I, I'm going to I'm going to give it a shot. Um, <clears throat> and if I if my voice starts to give, I'll, I'll signal Catherine to take over. I I don't I'm going to hold on. Okay, I don't need that. <laughs> um, so I'm going to read from the middle part of my book. Um, I, the New York Times review that Maura quoted from referenced a, a certain passage in my book that I thought, I'm going to read that passage. So this comes um, about a third of the way into the book. And the main things for you to know are that um, Vincent is in the Borinage, which is the mining district in Belgium, and he and his brother are estranged from one another. His brother came to visit him after he had been there for about a year and you know, sort of said to him, what are you doing with your life? Um, get a job. And, uh, so they, they, this is, I mean, true in the historical record. They, they didn't write any letters to each other for a year. So in my book, I have imagined a series of letters that Vincent is writing to Theo over the course of the time that they're estranged from one another and talking about the time that um, has passed in this place. So um, this passage, he's been in the mining district for about a month. And he's just been granted a temporary salary, so he's feeling particularly excited. And he just um, has made a little makeshift school for the boys of the, um, of the district. I'm um, just going to quickly see if there's anything else for you to know. Um, Madame Dennis is the name of the woman who um, is hosting him. She's the wife of the baker in the town. Um, and, oh, and the, there's a woman, her son is named Allard, and he and Vincent share a room in her house. And um, the girl, there's a girl named Angeline, who you'll hear referenced. She's a 17-year-old minor that has been showing up at Vincent's Bible classes, and um, he, they're both sort of curious about each other. I think that's it. Okay. The salon was ready for the boys' school in just a day. I swept the cobwebs and pine needles out with a broom I borrowed from Hannah de Kruk and put a number of my favorite prints up on the walls. Weissenbrook's mill by the Trekvart, a man on his horse stands next to a dog on a path overlooking a river. In the distance, an old windmill, all dwarfed by a patient sky. Breton's The Feast of St. John, which I got to see at the exhibition in Paris in 1875, a group of barefoot peasant women dancing, holding one another's arms in a joyful circle around a growing fire. Millet's Fields in Winter, a wide snow-covered field with an abandoned plow and harrow in the foreground. 
I wiped the windows with an old coal sack and stepped back, pleased with my work. It was cold, though, even after the boys arrived. No one was older than seven except for Allard, for he was the only one excused from work in the mine. The boys huddled in their coats and leaned over the books with their hands tucked into their armpits, their breath coming out in white clouds. Allard must have mentioned the cold to his mother, for a few days later, at noon, a near crowd of women appeared outside the salon, most of them carrying the ubiquitous burlap mining sacks. A few of the women pushed wheelbarrows and small wagons. Madame Dennis handed me a sack. Allard was with her, and he smiled at me shyly. In the back of the group, I noticed Angeline Dubois, who nodded her head at me. She and I had grown a bit more familiar as she had continued to attend my Bible classes, asking me questions that I could not always answer. One day, we had spoken to each other for quite a while outside the Ertz's hut, and her persistence in asking me questions about a Bible passage made me wonder why it was she seemed to not want to go home. I was happy to see her that day at the school. Come on with us, Monsieur Vincent, said Madame Dennis. It is time you learned how it is we find our coal. The women took me up on one of the nearby slag heaps to collect coal. Each family is typically given eight hectoliters of coal each month, and particularly in cold months, there is an inadequate amount. So the women either buy more from the company or go scrambling for more over the heaps. Madame Dennis told me this as we made our way to the heap we were to scavenge, Allard walking next to us, scrambling to keep up. Most families were too proud and too poor to buy more of the coal that they spent their days in sweat excavating from the earth, so most often the women and children took to the slag mountains to scavenge for themselves. But this was no simple thing, Theo, lest you get the wrong notion. Not only did the company police often patrol the heaps, even the refuse is company property, after all, Madame Dennis said with a tone of real frustration. Sometimes confiscating the women's sacks and breaking their wheelbarrows and wagons, but also the mountains of slag could shift underfoot, and every once in a while a woman was swallowed by the quicksand of shifting slag. They timed their visits to the pyramids carefully, aiming for the first number of hours of a shift at the mine for it wasn't until the coal had been excavated and sifted through the breakers, the good stuff separated from the bad, that the cars were ready to move to the slag heaps. Okay, so far, can you hear me in the back? Okay. We approached a small mountain that looked more like a ravine or the bank of a small creek, though of course there was no water running through it. Madame Dennis said this one had recently had been recently begun, but that it was always good to pick coal on the banks that were most recently in use, for these were the least picked over. There was a roughly built scaffold along the side of it, the planks of wood hastily nailed together, a rickety way for the company to lug the coal cars up to the top to dump them. Atop the mound was a thin dusting of snow, like an icing of sugar. I thought again of black Egypt, feeling that we were about to tread on holy ground. I glanced around at the little group as we came close, the women all dressed in long, thick skirts and aprons, the bottoms of their skirts darkened from the mud and soot they walked through, stains they could never quite clean away. Some of them had their heads covered with cotton scarves and bonnets, and many of them smiled if they met, their, if they met my eyes. Elsa Aird, my gossipy Bible group hostess, was there, as was Clara Gilmart, Hannah DeCruc, and a number of other women I knew. There were a few little girls who were dressed just like their mothers, and I recognized two of the boys from my school, Pierre and John, in their little black caps, their earnest faces looking to the mound of discarded coal with determination. Angelina Dubois blinked and looked away, shy of me in a way that flattered me and made me uncomfortable all at once. We took to the mountain. I pictured, I pictured how we must look from above, tiny figures scrambling up a dark, shifting mound, dwarfed by the blackness, using our hands to try to gain some traction to get higher, though it seemed that every time I looked up, I had gained no ground. We were a group of ants crawling up the side of an anthill. 
Some women began sifting and picking as soon as their feet touched the bank. But Madame Dennis called to me, Monsieur Vincent, it is always best to try to pick near the top. So I clambered up after her and Allard, who was already near the ridge. There was immediately soot in my eyes. When I looked down at my hands, I could not see them, for they were the same color as the ground. Something strange was happening to me, Theo. I had the momentary feeling that I had disappeared. I could feel my muscles moving, but it seemed that my limbs had plunged into the body of some unknown creature and had been absorbed. I was moving over the surface of something that had no surface, which meant that I was inside of it, climbing up its body from underneath its skin. Through my soot-covered eyes, I looked up and saw Allard, and the sight brought me back to myself. Allard's hat had flaps that covered his ears. Monsieur Vincent, he called, you are looking for the pieces that look like this. He held up a piece of coal, proud of himself for finding one so fast. His face was swept with soot as with a thick paintbrush, his hat just as dark. Adam Dennis was standing near him, looking pleased. I tried to stand and took a scoop of the mound up to my face to inspect it. A handful of dark matter sat in my palm, and it all looked the same to me. I let a couple rocks fall, for I was sure they were not what I wanted. Already I could feel cuts on my skin from trying to keep my balance as I scrambled up the hill. There I heard a voice next to me say, and I turned to find Angeline. I was relieved to see her, as if she could pass me a map to all the treasure hidden in the mountain. She was pointing at my palm. You've got a piece. I blinked at her and used my arm to try to wipe the soot from my eyes. It did only a little good. The image of her was darkened around the edges. I do? Yes, she said. Here, show me. I lifted my palm to her, and she pulled out a piece of the rubble. She held it between her thumb and forefinger, up by her face, and smiled at me. Coal. We picked through the coal for over an hour, and I barely had a third of my bag filled. Most of the women had bags so full they could barely carry them. My hands were scraped and bleeding, my face chapped by the soot and wind, but I was exhilarated by the work, which made my body feel vibrant and alive. What were we doing but ministering to the earth? We picked our way back down the mountain, and Madame Dennis clasped, clapped me on the back and raised her voice to the other women. Has any other evangelist climbed the heap with us? Monsieur Vincent is different. He is one of us. A few of the women laughed, and I could see derision in a few of the faces I had encountered less often. I shook my head and raised my voice. It takes a lot more than a trip up a slag heap to make a minor, and I could feel my cheeks blushing underneath the soot that covered my skin. Inside of me, I was on fire, Theo. I had found a way to belong to these people, to this place, and it was by digging my hands deep into the coal. Angeline came deep down the mountain next to me, and I could feel her presence by my side as pricks of cold ice all the way down my skin. It was the first time I had done any physical work in the Boronash, and in the euphoria of the exercise and the vision before me, I felt sure I saw something new. Physicality was the way the people of the Boronash expressed their version of God. It was in their muscles and their bent-over backs. It was in their breasts given to an infant, in their broken ribs healed wrong. What a beautiful scene, the peasant women moving in dark skirts and white bonnets over the black mountain were like Malay's images of women sewing, yet they were excavating a heap of the earth's insides. Remember in Malay, I was invigorated, struck by the melting of art and life. How strange to be moving in your life and at the same time feel you are an image, perfectly realized, seen by yourself from the outside. I was exalted. Even remembering it, I can feel the charge, a coil of fire that comes up from inside of me and lights me all the way up. I felt powerful and clear, as if I understood everything all at once. The cold, the darkness, the filth, the, women, the warmth of the people and the blood on our hands, the way the earth communicated with our bodies to bring us understanding, the way we were born from that coal and then returned to it, and the way that God provided us with the ability to see. Just by looking around us, we could learn what it was to be alive. We could be fully present, 
we could fully communicate. No words were necessary, only this place, only these hands and these faces streaked with black. When we had all descended the mountain and walked back to the path, I took Alard, Pierre, and John with me back to the salon for our afternoon lesson. The other boys came soon after. By the time they arrived, I had forgotten about the coal dust on my face, and only one of the boys mentioned it when he saw me, a particularly precocious boy named Harry. Monsieur Vincent, he said, you look like a real miner now. Welcome, boys. I greeted them, feeling a new charge of confidence. Alard, Pierre, John, and I have just been up one of the slag mountains collecting coal. This is something you have all done before, I am sure, with your mothers or sisters or aunts. There was general nodding and smiles from the boys, who were no doubt thinking how different I looked with my face smeared black. Carl, a boy who sat at the back and always wore his cap indoors, and in eccentricity I did not mind, spoke up. Monsieur Vincent, you should be careful doing that. My next-door neighbor went collecting one day, and the slag heap swallowed her. She never came back. Now my mother won't let me go with her anymore. It amazed me that these boys could be forbidden to go up the slag heap, but were allowed to go down in the mines and haul coal. I asked the boys if the slag heap scared them, and though they vehemently said no, there were a couple of boys who said nothing, and I took that to mean yes. Though they were tough children, they were children nonetheless, and I thought they were not old enough yet to be deliberately dishonest. It's all right to be scared of things, I said, trying to coax them. All of us, even the toughest of us, are scared of certain things. Being scared can help us to protect ourselves and to tell good from evil. Tell me some things that you are afraid of, if those slide heaps don't scare you. There was silence. The boys looked at one another, and then at me. I could see I would have to go first. Okay, I said, well, I'll tell you some things that I'm afraid of. Sometimes I wake up in the dark, and for a little while, I'm frightened of the shapes in my room. I think I see the chair moving like an animal before I realize it's a chair. Sometimes I'm afraid of running chickens. At this, the boys laughed. Really, I am. And when I was a boy, I was often afraid of my father when he was angry and sometimes I still am. After that, Pierre volunteered that he was afraid of fire, for once he had touched the stove without knowing it was hot, and had burned his hand so terribly he still had scars. He held out his hand for the other boys to see. Alard said he was afraid of dogs. He had seen one rip the head off a chicken by shaking it in its jaws. A usually quiet boy named Hugo said that he was afraid of losing his father in the mine. At this, a few of the boys lowered their heads and nodded. Hugo was the boy whom I had once caught with his foot raised over a caterpillar in the dew-laden grass. Why do you want to kill that little creature? I had asked him, taking his arm. God created it, and it is. There are many caterpillars in the Poranage, and whenever I see one slinking along, I pick it up and place it on a tree so as to preserve its strange beauty. Carl then raised his hand and said, Monsieur Vincent, my father says I am to be afraid of God. The stove was warm from the coal I had picked from the heap, but the boys had their coats on nonetheless. The lamp was burning in the corner, and the boys' little legs were swinging from the benches they sat on, their feet not yet touching the floor. I was still on fire from the slag heap, my skin tingling with a strange sensation, and I tried to calm myself knowing that I could scare the children in my present state. I knew Carl's father, Mark, was a believer, but one who seemed twisted in his faith, so that his relationship with Christ was more similar to that of a slave and a master. He had been to quite a few of my religious meetings, and I had often spoken to him down by the line as he came out of the gate after a shift, a hard man with dark eyebrows thick as grubs. When Carl was near him, Mark almost always had a hand on his son, a thick paw on his shoulder, both protective and threatening. The boys were confused, but I knew I could not help them. I have had too many of my own troubles on this very topic, as you know. I tried to warn myself to tread lightly, but I could not, Theo, not as I was in that moment, my hands still bleeding and black. Well, I began. 
We see there are many different types of fear. Come on, your father is not wrong. Certainly fearing God is an important part of listening to him and obeying his commandments. We obey and fear our own fathers, so all the more should we obey and fear our Father in heaven. I held out my hands in front of them. Look at my hands, I said. Do they not scare you? God made them, and God turned them black and bloody. God brought me up on that heap today so that I could be closer to him, so that I could be closer to all of you. Now here I am, and the darkness has marked me, and perhaps we should all be afraid. I was looking at my hands as I said this, and then remembered to raise my eyes, and I saw that the boy's eyes were wide and frightened. Not by my hands, of course, yes, Theo, I understand this, but by my outburst. Reaching for my Bible, trying to recover, feeling a confused urge to calm myself, and at the same time to rage further, to blow off the front of that furnace fed by the coal I had retrieved, and to show them all the visions I had seen. I read to them from Hebrews 12.9, Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? I couldn't help myself, Theo. I continued, Live, boys. That is what God wants us to do. But we cannot do that without getting our hands dirty, without becoming covered with black. We cannot continue through our lives pure and white and untouched. We must dive into the earth and, through its dust, find the way to reach one another. Looking up from the book, I saw a cluster of boys in woolen pants looking back at me with fear and awe and confusion. In each one of them I saw myself. I was one of those boys, just as I was standing in front of them. I saw you too, Theo, sitting in the front row looking at me with that confused expression you sometimes wear. Later that evening, the miners poured into the salon. Else and the human heard Carl's father and Mark to Crook and his next-door neighbors, the Adelgons. As they came through the door, I greeted them, feeling pleased that I recognized so many faces. I spoke about the parable of the mustard seed, where the tiniest kernel of faith was enough to grow a whole tree, a whole universe a whole kingdom. I felt confident, as if the Spirit were really speaking through me, perhaps for the first time, and all the souls were in the room were lifted up and were as one. When I got home to the Dennis's and looked in the mirror above the wash bin, I was staggered by what I saw. A miner's face looked back at me. For a moment, I did not remember the slag heap and thought by some miracle I had been transformed. I had come so close to the flock that evening that even my appearance had changed and belonging had been granted to me. Then I remembered, but was no less pleased, for in the image of myself with my face turned black, I saw a vision of myself as being of the place, and it was a vision of acceptance. I turned back to the room I shared with Allard, who was already asleep, and saw it as if for the first time, the bed with its warm quilt of feathers the vase of flowers on the bedside table, the white chest of drawers decorated with a delicate rendering of an apple orchard. It was lovely and simple, but nonetheless, it was not a miner's cottage. It was removed. Its construction and its decoration and its placement and even its smell, always so pleasant and sweet, removed. I could not stay at the Dennis's any longer. I knew it suddenly and with certainty. I climbed into bed without washing my face. I did not plan to ever wash it again. The next morning, I left the dentist's house and moved to a hut I had noticed near the salon, abandoned some time ago, but not yet falling into the earth. Mrs. Dennis was worried when I left. When she saw me with my suitcase, she was surprised. Her eyebrows turned in. She questioned me. Where was I going? Where would I sleep? Was there a bed in the hut? Was there food? Was I unhappy at their house? Had they not done everything to provide for me? I answered that her home was beautiful, her home was a sanctuary, but from time to time one should do as the good God and go live among one's own. The words coming out of my mouth sounded feeble and forced. I could hear the way they must sound to her and knew they were not as I meant them. 
She looked at me as if to say, you, like them, like us? Her face was confused, her mouth tight. She was concerned, she did not understand. She pleaded with me to have a bath and wipe the soot off of my face, at least before I left. I refused her. Dear Theo, when did you get to be older than I? When you were boys, you would do everything that I did. I stepped first in the snow and you followed. But somewhere along the way, you must have grown older or grown past, for there you were telling me in front of the sorcerer mine that you were worried for me. Isn't it my job to worry for you? It has been three months since your visit, and here I am in an empty room writing to you. But which version of you am I writing to? Is it the boy whom I share a bed with, or the man in his top hat and dapper suit? I remember you, sick in that bed in Zanut, the curtains drawn, and Ma insisting that I tiptoe quietly into the room so I would not disturb you. Am I disturbing you now, Theo? Am I disturbing you? I remember wandering over the heath with you one morning when we were boys. We came across the skeleton of a bird. Do you remember this? It lay in the tall grass by the edge of the lane, as if it had been moved off the path in order to decompose undisturbed. Most of the flesh was gone, save for a piece of the belly, the part of any creature that always looks the most revealing, as if it is the seat of an animal's personality, as a man's plump stomach can tell you much about what his life is like. The bird's wings lay beneath it, long bones tucked in close, and we could still see the rounded crown of the head, though the flesh was gone and there was no longer a face. The skeleton was perfectly intact, tiny ribs like bridges emerging from the remaining cover at its belly, an incredible immaculate spine, bleached all white from the sun, knobs fitting together like perfect minuscule fists linked in a chain. Little pieces of white fluff clung to where the face had been, we crouched by the skeleton for quite a time, taking in its details and contours, windows into the processes of death. For a while, we were both silenced by it, the story that it told, one of creation and destruction, one of artistry, of perfection, of time and decay, and of what lay beneath the surfaces that we saw. Then I said I wanted to take it home with us. You erupted at this idea. You were horrified and frightened. How could I want to do such a thing? You grew tearful at the prospect that I would remove the bird. Your eyes grew large and wet, and you wailed at me, your neck and face flushing red. I was taken aback by your protest. I had assumed that we were both seeing the same thing while we crouched there, peering at the skeleton, but your cries made me realize otherwise. What I had seen was an object, one that contained mysteries of the universe, certainly, but an object nonetheless. What you had seen was a bird, a creature once alive, now dead, that deserved to return to the earth in peace. Your vision in that moment inspired me. I had been so focused on the object before us that the rest of the world had gone fuzzy and fallen away. It is a focus of vision that I still have, and that is dangerous, for when I come back to myself after looking so closely, my brain is so tired that if that sort of work is repeated often, I become totally distracted and incapable of a whole lot of ordinary things. You, with your forceful cries, brought me back to the earth, the two of us kneeling in the mud by the side of a lane, that little skeleton but a tiny detail in an otherwise enormous world. My little brother was so much wiser and more sensitive than I, I saw then with such an eye that even at your age, you could already recognize that some mysteries were meant to remain so. I have not yet mailed any of the letters I have written you since your visit. I begin to wonder if I will ever send them, if there will ever be any further contact between us again.
proud of myself for making it through. <laughs> um, I think I, I'd love to answer questions if there are any, and if I can keep my voice up.
it just stuck with me all that time. So it, it kind of, I, I was, felt like I was working against the clock, like someone is going to write this book if I don't get to it, um, because it just is such an interesting story. And I mean, in terms of, in terms of uh, inhabiting him, it was really a pleasure. I really enjoyed myself. Um, I, I see a lot of similarities in my now, in my character of Vincent and myself that I didn't necessarily see as I was writing it, but um, I think I sort of deluded myself into thinking that I was inhabiting this real person who really lived, but of course I was inhabiting a character, so um, it allowed me to, I think, put more of myself in, in it because I was thinking I wasn't writing about myself. Um, anyway, I could talk about that for a long time. But. <laughs>
very struck by the description of the bird and the detail and the metaphor you made for that. Um, so this is more a question about teaching um, with the medical students that you work with and the other students that you have. Um, I mean, to me, that passage is almost like a symbol for the American medicine program, right? How do you um, encourage your students to, um, to look at things that closely and to write in such detail? Also, a very good question and not easily answered. I think, I mean, I guess the easiest answer would be repetitive uh, asking of that. You know, making some, asking someone to do that kind of close work over and over and over again until it becomes somewhat of a habit. Um, I believe that that's possible. Um, you know, a lot of creative writing exercises which we throw at our students again and again, they, they make people feel very uncomfortable at first, but I think you know, if you have a, the idea is if you have a series of them over the course of 14 weeks, you know, they, it becomes more comfortable to do the creative work. Um, and. You know, not all of them are about looking at something closely, but I think it's about that kind of getting into a habit of that kind of looking at things and that kind of responding to the world. Um, I don't know. It's another really complicated question. I think about that a lot. You know, do you, are you just born looking at the world that way, or do you can you cultivate it? Can you can you be 50 years old and start to see things differently? Um, I I. I want to believe that it's possible, and I think I do. Um, but sometimes I'm like, are you just deluding yourself, you know? Um, but that's what, that's what I try to do, is just kind of make it a habit. And when, when it's an introductory class, you have to, in order to make it a habit, you have to ask those things of people again and again, um, or else it just, it just doesn't stick. brave to come into a room full of health-related people. Fifty years ago, I would have said medical-related people. But Dean Goldman, when he got here, he said, hey, we ain't, we ain't just talking about medicine, we're talking about healthcare and nurses and social workers and all those other good people. And I think you're very aware that healthcare is different from how we used to define it. But my question to you, you are now exposed to a heavy concentration of people in healthcare coming from one angle and another angle and the third angle. I'm always a little puzzled that about 95% of the people there happen to be of the female gender, and the other 5% of them are a couple of us up here. But, uh, but none, I, I don't understand that. That'd be, that'd be nice. However, my, my question to you, uh, for you to come to us, we obviously enjoy being here. We obviously enjoy hearing what someone from another science, from another universe, looks at the world and writes things that you write, and people are interested enough so they buy your books and read them, so there's something there. Do you recognize that? Question, uh, if you got everything you want out of being exposed to this heavy concentration of some kind of scientist, social science, nursing science, and all the rest of it, is there anything that you would like us to take home because we've been exposed to you, or would you like to take anything home that you didn't Realize before you came to see. Gosh, really difficult questions all around. Um, I mean, I think that I hope that the things that I want from you are the same things that you would want from me, in the sense that I hope that we're not that different. Um, that we may have different professions, but it, in the end, we're kind of hopefully all wanting and trying for the same things. So. I mean, I think I would, you know, someone asked me at some point about, like, what, another sort of ridiculously hard question, like, what do you want your readers to take away from this book? It's like, I, I don't know, I, you know, read the book, I don't know. But um, I, I, my answer was, you know, I, I, the thing that moved me about this story was this, this person that was struggling to find out who he was and what he was good at and what he could offer back to the world. That was like his thing, you know, like what can I give back? And 
that is kind of what I hope people can take away, and it's also ultimately what I want to take away too. It's kind of like, what what are we all here for? What's, what's it all for? Um, so, there's a big answer to a big question. I did try, yeah. The first few ver first few drafts were not letters, um, and they were not dire directed to Theo. It was, I read that was one of the biggest, it was once I figured out he was talking to Theo, actually it became a lot easier. Um, the book is actually divided into two narratives. One is the letters, and the other is a third person um, narrative of him walking to go see Theo. And that just created a, a, a narrative um, movement that I didn't have before, because before it was just him telling this story, and I didn't know who he was telling it to. And I kept, I tried a few different times, like make up people that he was telling it to. It's sort of ridiculous in retrospect that it took me so long to think of him writing to Theo, because that's what he did his whole life. Um, but I didn't. It didn't. Uh, it didn't come until later, and that really allowed things to fall into place in a, in a much better way than they had been before, so. Yeah, I mean, that actually was really one of the central struggles in writing the book for me was the, how do you write a book about a guy who's literally alone the whole book? Um, and that, that, again, that was kind of why the letters were so helpful once I figured that out, because I really didn't, I, I didn't want to fabricate, I didn't want to make up, you know, buddies, um, because I really doubt that there were those. Um, but so it was, that was the struggle, was how do, you, how do you give voice to the inner world without you know, totally overpowering. Like another thing, the first, in my very first draft, it was all first person, and what I heard back from readers was like, this is, it's too much. It's like nobody wants to read this voice for 300 pages. <clears throat> I would, but probably nobody else would. <laughs> um, so yeah, I did think about that a lot. And it was really interesting. I mean, it's just sort of not a surprise, but it's interesting when it, the the solution is, oh, well, he has to be in relation to someone else. You have to make him speaking to someone else. There has to be someone on the other side, even if in in real life there wasn't. I mean, I don't I obviously don't know what really happened, but um, I imagine that he must have spent time writing his narrative to someone. Maybe he didn't, but. I don't know, yeah, I, don't, it, I did think about that a lot. Deeply. I want to thank you, Nellie, for the Thank you. Um, in, in clinical medicine, we often talk about one of the real uh, work of the clinician is to try to see the perspective of, of the patient and try to enter that 
experience somehow in whatever way you can. And I think a lot of the work in narrative medicine is giving us tools to help us do that. Um, and although I think the bigger risk is not doing that, some people still talk about the potential risk of what happens when we enter someone else's experience, someone who may be suffering, someone who may be going through a lot of physical, emotional, psychic uh, trauma. And I was wondering what experience, what this experience for you was like uh, inhabiting a character that was lonely, that was troubled in many ways. Did you experience a situation where you needed to put up some boundaries between your inhabitation of, of the character and how did you do that? Oh, such good questions, guys. Um, I mean, it's interesting. A lot of the book, most of the book, I wrote in periods of time when I was alone, um, either at residencies or at my family's house in Cape Cod. So it's, I didn't feel like I had to put up those boundaries in, in part because I, I, wasn't, I wasn't going back and forth between this voice and my own life. I don't think I could have really occupied this voice had I not had the space and time to really be in it all the time. Um, but I don't know, it's such a good question. And I think thinking about sort of, I mean, I, I don't know, I, in my experience, I, I, maybe Vincent Van Gogh is really an unfair person to try and connect to everybody, um, you know, thinking about just anyone you meet, because he really was quite special, but I, um, I found in inhabiting him, I only grew in affection for him. Um, and if anything, I had to work, you know, some of the early comments I got in the book was like, you, you love this guy too much. Like, you need to make him more complicated and more, you know, yes, he's unlikable because he goes on and on and on and on, but he's not, in my early drafts, he wasn't unlikable because he was rude or, um, which he, I think, really was in real life. I think he was not nice a lot of the time. Um, but I didn't want, I, I didn't like that part of him, so I was making him not that way. Um, anyway, so that is, you know, again, just that question of like trying to inhabit a real person and does my, does this look anything like what he was, was really? I don't know. Um, but he definitely was a very internal person, but I think I am too, so I don't know. I'm just rambling now, but I don't know if I answered your question at all. <coughs> Where in the evolution of your research did you discover the genesis of his insanity to come? Uh, that's a problematic word in my mind. Um, his mental anguish that was untreated? I mean, I, I read and focused entirely on the time before he became the artist that we know him as, so I really didn't I mean, I, I read all the letters up until that point, and I, I read some of the ones later, but I really don't feel like I know that later person as well as I know the early person. So I can only partially answer the question, which is to say, like, I think he was an incredibly intense and troubled person always. Um, but I feel very protective of him, and even till now, I don't, I find myself not sure that the general population's understanding of him is right. Um, I think he may have had much more of a physical illness than he did a mental one. Um, and yeah, he was troubled and he was, you know, whatever, who knows, I don't know. But I, I, I just find, I, I get like, my back goes up when people are like, oh, that was oh, crazy, you know, he was crazy. And I'm just like, we don't actually know anything, really. We have his letters, but. Anyway, he was intense. He was very intense. I, I that's for sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think maybe, I think a lot of that stuff did come later, and maybe I saved myself from having to wrestle more with the real guy by not reading about the later part of his life as much.
on, you don't. Um, it's never done. I mean, I could, it's not done. I don't know. I feel, I feel happy with the way it turned out. I feel proud of the result, but I could have, especially the ending, I could have, I, I mean, I could still be working on it. I don't, that's the only part I don't yet feel is totally the way I wanted it. Um, and I, you just need, you know, just need to call it a day at a certain point um, when you feel like it's good enough and you send it to someone who says, okay, it's good enough, let's, let's find someone who wants to publish it. Um, and then hopefully someone at some point, you know, says, okay, it's good enough, which is what happened. I mean, especially the ending, I, I still was like, um, so then you just cross your fingers and hope nobody notices. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, <laughs> to reflect on what Dr. Pearson asked about what you would take away from this, one thing that I hope you do take away is to look at this audience as a real representative of the community at Columbia, the students, the faculty, the house staff, and the patients, and to recognize how the years of work that you've done here have truly, and the creative work that you've done over many years has truly impacted our community. So thank you so much for being here, Nellie. So we have books in the back for sale. Um, thank you all for being here. Have a good night. Yeah, and if you want the book signed, uh, Nelly will be up here to sign the books. Thank you. That was awesome.